In the year 1930, in the United States of America, Doris Webster and Mary Alden Hopkins published a book called "Consider the Consequences," a romantic novel in which the reader makes choices to determine the fates of three protagonists in three separate narratives: Helen, Jed, and Saunders. The narratives are connected with overlapping characters. There were several endings, up to seventeen, depending on the character that you chose. Hello, my name is Torn Atkinson, and I will be your guide to the realm of game books. To hear more about game books, go to Time Code right now. To hear about the eruption of Krakatoa, go to Time Code twenty-two-thirty-three. So, regarding consider the consequences. Guillermo Paredes of GameBooks.org writes: This being a book for adults, the choices included have really serious consequences, and the ability to play as either a female or one of two male characters allows the reader to gain greater insights into certain aspects of the social life of the era, such as social class, marriage, divorce, single motherhood, and women's increasing em- emancipation and participation in the labor force. The 30s were a time of significant changes in social norms, which are highlighted in a manner that manages to be both entertaining and educational. The book makes great reading material for people interested in subjects such as sociology or gender studies. The story deals with alcoholism, unmarried cohabitation, unusual family arrangements,、hmm, political corruption, and even suicide, without trying to obscure or sugarcoat their implications. It also details both player and non-player characters. With a level of psychological depth I've very seldom seen in interactive interactive fiction. Notably for such an early work, the structure of the adventures is quite complex, with several story branches crossing with each other instead of all the paths remaining separate. So these two authors, Doris Webster and Mary Alden Hopkins,、uh, led up to this work with a few precursor books、uh, that kind of quizzed the reader and came up with a fortune or a personality result based on that choice. But this book really seems to be、uh, what we talk about when we say game books, and let's define what we mean by game books. We could say interactive fiction, but that、uh, term is actually typically reserved for software simulations like text adventures,、uh, if you know 1977's Zork, or visual novels in Japan. Game books are written in the second person, which means the author addresses the reader directly as you. It's also worth noting in 1936 there was a play called The Night of January 16th, which was about a trial, and members of the audience are chosen to play the jury and deliver a verdict, which then influences the play's ending, guilty or not guilty. So that's kind of, although it's not technically a game book, it's kind of like, oh, here's an interesting interactive mechanic in a work of fiction. In 1941, the possibility of having stories branching out into several different paths was suggested by Jorge Luis Borges, or Borges—I don't know. What's he most known for? This fine Argentine man, Argentine, 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 Argentine. He's from Argentina, and when I say Argentina, I mean Argentina. Probably the Library of Babel, or Labyrinths, or the Book of Imaginary Beings, which I recall having when I was a young man. Anyway, this was suggested in his short story *An Examination of the Work of Herbert Quain* in 1941, and this story features an author whose novel is a three-part story containing two branch points with nine possible endings. Another story by Borges entitled、uh, *The Garden of Forking Paths*, also 1941, describes a book with a maze-like narrative which may have inspired the game book form. Then, in 1945, in Britain, the children's book *Treasure Hunt* was published under the name. Of Alan George, probably a pseudonym, 
Another early example of a story with multiple paths for the reader to follow. Every second page has a full illustration and a choice of which path to take. Now, up to this point, choose your own adventure was not a name, was not a term at all. But in 1969, a lawyer named Edward Packard had hit upon an idea. He told his children bedtime stories, and whenever he couldn't figure out how to resolve a story, he would ask them, well, what do you think should happen? And he realized that they enjoyed the stories more when they helped to choose the ending. So during his commute, he began writing a shipwreck adventure called Sugarcane Island. Mmm, Sugarcane Island. With multiple storylines that required reader participation. Uh, he finished it in 1969, and it went unpublished for seven years. So we'll get back to Edward Packard in a second. But I want to talk about, in 1972, Mission to Planet L. This was the first in the Tracker book series. This may have well been the first series of game books to be published. The adventures cover a range of different genres and are in landscape format rather than portrait format. So that's kind of an interesting layout. The books are extremely visual. Every page of text has an illustration. And choices may appear either as page numbers in the text or as numbered arrows in the pictures. Puzzles are also included in some of the books. Uh, my personal favorite title from this series is Three Men in a Maze. Three Men in a Maze. <laughs> who will eat who? All right. Uh, 1976. After a friend suggested that someone should make a dungeon adventure book that allows the player to choose an answer and turn to another page, Rick Loomis wrote Buffalo Castle. This was an introduction to Tunnels and Trolls, a fantasy role-playing game designed by Ken St. Andre and first published in 1975 by Flying Buffalo. It is the second modern role-playing game published written to be a more accessible alternative to Dungeons and Dragons, yes. Although it is widely believed that the Fighting Fantasy series of books were the first game books to use dice and allow the character to possess statistics and equipment, Buffalo Castle predates the Fighting, fighting Fantasy series by six years and uses the same types of mechanics. Buffalo Castle may have been the first published adventure game book, and you can actually get it on PDF on drivethroughrpg.com for three bucks. Also in 1976, Raymond Almiron Montgomery Jr., uh, also known as R.A. Montgomery, a former high school teacher who saw the educational value in game structure, read Edward Packer's Sugarcane Island, which I mentioned before, and picked it up for his publishing company, Vermont Crossroads Press. This began the Adventures of You series under Montgomery. And in 1977 and 1978, Packard's next two books in the same format, Deadwood City and Third Planet from Altair, was published by Lippincott. So I'm not even sure why I'm not sure why it wasn't published on Vermont Crossroads Press. But anyway, Vermont Crossroads sold the rights to Bantam in 1979, and Packard and Montgomery wrote many books in what officially became the Choose Your Own Adventure series. Uh, Montgomery went on to pen over 200 titles in this series. Prolific bastard. Uh, the series of interactive game books initially had so-so sales until some genius in marketing had the idea to seed 100,000 books in libraries across the country. Overnight, the books became hugely popular and went on to sell millions. The original classic Choose Your Own Adventure series contained 184 game books authored by 30 different writers. The Choose Your Own Adventure series began to get into licensed works like Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, uh, and they did the Star Wars original trilogy, not like new Star Wars tales, but they're like, here, you can play Star Wars A New Hope 
uh, in the comfort of your own uh, book reading room. They also had a horror line called Choose Your Own Nightmare, which was in the Goosebumps style from R.L. Stein. And incidentally, R.L. Stein himself went on to write 50 books for the Scholastic series Give Yourself Goosebumps. And he went on to write many game books, including for the G.I. Joe franchise, Indiana Jones, and the series Wizards, Warriors, and You in 1984, where you either played the wizard or the warrior, and in which most challenges were resolved with a coin flip. So, yeah, that's R.L. Stein. Now, these being children's books, there were, of course, many horrible fates that uh, you, the uh, adventurer, could end up with a death being one of them. But many times, these sorts of negative endings included, like, the transformation of of the reader into a non-human form and becoming permanently stuck in the transformed state. I want to talk about, specifically, an interesting choose-your-own-adventure book called Inside UFO 5440. Now, this was written by uh, Packard, again, the, one, the, uh, the guy who wrote The Sugarcane Island. Is... UFO 5440, the origin of the band, the Canadian band 5440. Let's Google it. Origin of band name 5440. Oh, that's interesting. It says here on Google that the band takes their name from the slogan 5440 or fight, coined to express the unsuccessful expansionist agenda of James K. Polk's presidency, intent upon controlling a contested U.S. Canada border area in the Oregon boundary dispute. So that must be like latitude. That would make sense. Let's not digress. So maybe Packard was a fan of border disputes? I don't know. Anyway, in this book, Inside UFO 5440, you are kidnapped by aliens who wish to place you in a zoo. This book, apparently one of the stronger Choose Your Own Adventure books, despite the fact that it contains the gimmick of making the reader search for the planet Ultima, a place which is in the book, but completely unreachable by regular play. You cannot get to it by choosing your own adventure using the rules. You have to cheat to find it. You have to flip through the book to find this two-page spread where you find the planet Ultima. So that's kind of an interesting... Is like, what what is the lesson there for the reader? Like, Is it like cheating is okay or just like, you know, hey, kids, think outside the box a little or maybe somewhere a little bit both. But anyway, that's fun. I like that. So that's 1982. Also 1982, Fighting Fantasy. Everyone knows these books, don't you, listener? Know the Fighting Fantasy books? I think you do. Steve Jackson, the British Steve Jackson, not the American Steve Jackson of Steve Jackson Games, who makes Munchkin, I believe, and Ian Livingstone. They, those two guys, who also went on to co-found Games Workshop, they started the Fighting Fantasy series, and they distinguished themselves by mixing the Choose Your Own Adventure style with a dice-based role-playing element that was including in the books themselves, and adding a character sheet with stats, uh, with the stats, skill, stamina, and luck. Although, as I mentioned, uh, the Buffalo Castle also had this um, system. According to SciFiNow.co.uk, the top three best fighting fantasy game books are City of Thieves, 1983, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, 1982, and Appointment with Fear, F-E-A-R, Fear, 1985, which appears to be, which was a superhero uh, genre, not the typical, uh, you know, fantasy setting. Also, I want to mention House of Hell, which is uh, a haunted house, and it was super hard. I see somewhere that this was 
going to be made into a movie, but the last information I can find is from 2017, so maybe it's in Development House of Hell. <laughs> yeah. Also, Robot Commando, special mention for that. Uh, these books were all fairly lavishly illustrated, as I recall, so that's good. Also in 1982, TSR, publisher of Dungeons & Dragons, published its first book in the Endless Quest series. Dungeon of Dread was that book. The books in this series were primarily set in the Dungeons & Dragons world of Greyhawk, but they also included the horror fantasy setting Ravenloft, Conan's Hyborian setting, Star Frontiers, the post-apocalyptic Gamma World, which, now that I know it exists, I wouldn't mind getting my hands on some of those Gamma World choosing adventures, or uh, Endless Quest books, I should say. And the Red Box 3rd Edition basic set of Dungeons & Dragons came with a solitaire adventure designed to introduce new players to mapping and fighting. And, of course, later more solo modules were published, some of which used a strip of transparent red film called the Magic Viewer to reveal hidden details of text and, uh, and the map as needed by the player. So that's pretty cool. Other role-playing game publishers followed suit. Uh, including the Alone Against series for Call of Cthulhu by Chaosium, which I didn't actually know about until I did the research for this, which, to my eternal shame, I kind of want to read those books as well. 1984, British author Joe Dever, or Dever, first created the fictional world of Magnamund in 1977 as a setting for his Dungeons & Dragons campaign. And he published in 1984 the first Lone Wolf book, a series of 30 game books focused in his fictional world of Magnamund, where the forces of good and evil fight for control of the planet. The protagonist is Lone Wolf, last of his cast of warrior monks known as Kai Lords. Each book comes with a map of the realm. I have one of these. I have the one I have is actually number two, Fire on the Water, which I think was given to me by Thomas Falk special adjunct member of the Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. Each book comes with a map of the realm, pages of your action chart, where you record weapons and gear, your combat skill, your endurance points. In lieu of dice, there's a random number table on the page, on a page in the back. And so you're supposed to close your eyes and take your pencil or your finger, I guess, and point at the page, and then when you open your eyes, you see, oh, I've uh, my fingers or my pencil's on the number zero, so that's what I rolled, and that's sad. Highest number is nine. Anyway, the series of books is actually like a campaign. So if you've completed book one, you can carry over the stats and equipment to book two. So that's pretty cool. And then in 2005, uh, Lone Wolf, the role-playing game, was published by Mongoose Publishing. For Bible fans, in 1998, uh, sorry, in 1988, Abingdon Press uh, started their series. It might not even be a series. It might have just been one. I, I was having a hard time finding all the information on this. Stepping into the Bible, where you can, uh, you know... Choose your own Bible adventure. You can guess, yeah. let's go to Demian's Gamebook webpage, gamebooks.org. Uh, it says this relatively thin book allows the reader to participate in a variety of stories taken from the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. Notes are included in the back to show where they where in the Bible the stories were drawn from. So that's kind of cool, actually. A fun way to get into Christianity, I guess. So by the late 1980s, the Choose Your Own Adventure series was flagging. Lackluster concepts like You Are a Shark were pushed through in the rush to keep the installments coming. Then with the rise of video and computer games, which were provided the same interactivity in a more addictive format, uh, Choose Your Own Adventure's foothold in the market was slipping. But 
1995, probably the most intricately designed game books ever published, the seven published Fabled Lands books are all interconnected. Each book, written by Dave Morris and Jamie Thompson, represents a different segment of a larger world, and it is possible to hop from book to book in a non-linear fashion, completing quests, gaining an experience. Players have six attributes whose initial scores are determined by character profession. There are also stamina points to represent health and an inventory for items. Code words are used in each book to keep track of which areas have already been visited and which major events have already occurred. And there are sometimes places in the text where players may leave behind items to be retrieved later. Oh, yeah. And a tabletop RPG was published in 2011. In 1999, Kim Newman's Life's Lottery was published. The speculative fiction novel can be read either as a non-interactive standard novel or as a game book. When read front to back, all of the scenarios are read as playing out in the protagonist's mind, with occasional interruptions from two doctors who tease out information that the protagonist is not who he seems to be. Very interesting. There are some interesting adult game books called... Uh, there's a Hamlet game book called To Be or Not to Be by Ryan North. There's Lost in Austin, a create-your-own-Jane-Austen-adventure by Emma Campbell-Webster. There's A Girl Walks into a Bar, a choose-your-own-erotic-destiny novel by Helena S. Page. That's a good last name for an author. Anyway, as my good friend Amber of The Bookman in Chilliwack and Abbotsford says... Choose Your Own Adventure books are still selling, and in fact, they are published currently, not by Bantam, but by ChooseCo LLC of Waitsfield, Vermont, uh, founded by R.A. Montgomery, who is uh, now sadly passed away, and a very litigious company, I've come to learn, as they sued Netflix in 2019. I'm sure you're aware of Netflix's Bandersnatch, uh, Black Mirror episode slash movie which is a sort of interactive fiction and i guess they sued them because they mention it actually mentioned by name choose your own adventure in the movie so i guess choose co feels like maybe people will think that's part of their brand and that's pretty much where we're at with with your choose your own adventure style game books thank you to all my friends on facebook who responded to my post hey what do you remember about Choose Your Own Adventure books? So once again, a special thank you to Damien Katz and his very helpful website, gamebooks.org. Not only can you search for series and titles and years and authors on their database, but you can also see what users have spare copies of their books. So I might go in there and plug my little Gamma World uh, search function in there and... Uh, See if I can buy some books off some people. Because I like Gamma World. And I feel compelled to bring up his game book, The Groom of the Tomb. The Groom of the Tomb, colon, or comma, Lancelot's Darling's Decisions, published in 2014. I have not read the book, but it has 100% rating, 100%, five stars on Amazon.com. Set in 1881. It is an interactive companion to Mrs. Alex McVeigh Miller's forgotten classic, The Bride of the Tomb, or Lancelot's, Lancelot Darling's Betrothed. So, Groom of the Tomb or Lancelot Darling's Decision is Damien's book. 
Bride of the Tomb, or Lancelot's Darling's Betrothed, is McVeigh Miller's. And whereas Damien's is set in 1881, Miller's classic Bride of the Tomb was published in 1883. So ask for that at your local bookstore. Or if you need to go to Amazon.com, then just go to Amazon.com. But I bet you if you contact Damien through grainbooks.org, maybe he can uh, sell you one direct. Skip the middle site, as I like to say. Also, I wanted to give a special mention to the Papercut Arcade, a collective of creatives who explore interactive fiction, games, art, and the intersections between. They host exhibitions, salons, creative challenges, and interactive events several times a year right here in my hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia. They do a series of events called Choose Your Own Way. If that sounds interesting to you, check them out on Facebook or thepapercutarcade.ca. In May, they are doing another narrative event, Choose Your Own Adventure style. The theme is Apocalypse, but the format in which you present your interactive story is up to you. You can do a mini booklet, a zine, a twine project, a performance piece, an RPG game, an audio project. So get involved, make some cool art, and I'll see you there probably. When we last left our heroes... You stand before a decrepit old wizard. Adventures! Your next quest is to convince the listener to subscribe to the Dungeons & Dragons live play podcast, Adventure.exe. Roll initiative. Alright, so uh, so I think what Rufus, the uh, human bard, is going to do is he's going to uh, offer a bribe. Yeah, a bribe. Uh, everyone, empty out your pockets. Oh, come on. Uh, all I've got is uh, some buttons and some lint. But if I put you're going to bribe, you should use your own money. Well, I, I put up my buttons. I don't know what more you want. How much could a bribe cost? 100 gold? 200? Polly, do you have any money on you? Yeah, I don't have any money, but I, I can cast friends. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll uh, give you a bardic inspiration to your friends. I'll uh, could, could I'll do some it? farting noises to give you <laughs> inspiration. Could you cast friends on like everybody who's listening like, yeah. all at once? Yeah, DM. I'm going to cast friendship on everybody who's listening. So they subscribe to our podcast. Yeah, and source all those bastards. You've worn down the listeners with your ridiculous shenanigans. And our magic. And and magic, and also bribery. <laughs> the universal language. <laughs> they go to their podcast service of choice and subscribe to Adventure.exe. You all level up. Yeah! yeah! I'm going to steal my money back. I would like to now read for you this article from Nautil.us. Posted September 29, 2014 by Atish Bhatia. On 27th August, 1883. Hey, that's the same year that the Bride of the Tomb game book was published. Hmm. The earth let out a noise louder than any it has made since. It was 10.02 a.m. local time when the sound emerged from the island of Krakatoa, which sits between Java and Sumatra in Indonesia. It was heard 1,300 miles away in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Uh, quote, Extraordinary sounds were heard as of guns firing. 2,000 miles away in New Guinea and Western Australia. A series of loud reports resembling those of artillery in a northwesterly direction. And even 3,000 miles away in the Indian Ocean island of Rodriguez near Mauritius. Mauritius, Mauritius, Mauritius. Coming from the eastward like the distant roar of heavy guns. In all, it was heard by people in over 50 different geographical locations, together spanning an area covering a 13th of the globe. Think for a moment just how crazy this is. If you're in Boston and someone tells you that they heard a sound coming from New York City, you're probably going to give them a funny look. 
But Boston is a mere 200 miles from New York. What we're talking about here is like being in Boston and clearly hearing a noise coming from Dublin, Ireland, traveling at the speed of sound, uh, 766 miles or 1,233 kilometers per hour. It takes a noise about four hours to cover that distance. This is the most distant sound that has ever been heard in recorded history. So, what could possibly create such an earth-shatteringly loud bang? A volcano on Krakatoa had just erupted with a force so great that it tore the island apart, emitting a plume of smoke that reached 17 miles into the atmosphere, according to a geologist who witnessed it. You could use this observation to calculate that stuff spewed out of the volcano at over 1,600 miles per hour, or nearly half a mile per second. That's more than twice the speed of sound. Stuff. Uh, this explosion created a deadly tsunami with waves over 100 feet, that's 30 meters, in height. 165 coastal villages and settlements were swept away and entirely destroyed. In all, the Dutch, the colonial rulers of Indonesia at the time, estimated the death toll at three <laughs> 36,417. It's a very specific estimate. While other estimates exceed 120,000 deaths. The British ship, Norham Castle, was 40 miles from Krakatoa at the time of the explosion. The ship's captain wrote in his log, so violent are the explosions that the eardrums of over half my crew have been shattered. My last thoughts are with my dear wife. I am convinced that the day of judgment has come. Oh, God help me. In general, sounds are not caused by the end of the world, but by fluctuations in air pressure. A barometer at the Batavia Gas Works, 100 miles away from Krakatoa, registered the ensuing spike in pressure at over 2.5 inches of mercury. That converts to over 172 decibels of sound pressure, an unimaginably loud noise. To put that in context, if you were operating at a jackhammer, you'd be subject to about 100 decibels. The human threshold for pain, as seen in that original Star Trek episode with Captain Kirk, uh, is near 130 decibels. And if you had the misfortune of standing next to a jet engine, you'd experience a 150 decibel sound. Uh, a 10 decibel increase is perceived by people as sounding roughly twice as loud. The Krakatoa explosion registered 170 deci 172 decibels at 100 miles from the source. This is so astonishingly loud that it's inching up against the limits of what we mean by sound. When you hum a note or speak a word, you're wiggling air molecules back and forth dozens or hundreds of times uh, per second, causing the air pressure to be low in some places and high in other places. The louder the sound, the more intense these wiggles, and the larger the fluctuations in air pressure. But there's a limit to how loud a sound can get. At some point, the fluctuations in air pressure are so large that the low-pressure region hits zero pressure, a vacuum. You can't get any lower than that. This limit happens to be about 194 decibels for a sound in Earth's atmosphere. Any louder, and the sound is no longer just passing through the air, it's actually pushing the air along with it, creating a pressurized burst of moving air known as a shock wave. Closer to Krakatoa, the sound was well over this limit, producing a blast of high-pressure air so powerful that it ruptured the eardrums of sailors 40 miles away. As this sound traveled thousands of miles, reaching Australia and the Indian Ocean, the wiggles in the pressure started to die down, sounding more like a distant gunshot. Over 3,000 miles into its journey, the wave of pressure grew too quiet for human ears to hear, 
but it continued to sweep onward, reverberating for days across the globe. The atmosphere was ringing like a bell, imperceptible to us but detectable by our instruments. By 1883, weather stations in scores of cities across the world were using barometers to track changes in atmospheric pressure. Six hours and 47 minutes after the Krakatoa explosion, a spike of air pressure was detected in Calcutta. By eight hours, the pulse reached Mauritius in the west and Melbourne and Sydney in the east. By 12 hours, St. Petersburg noticed the pulse, followed by Vienna, Rome, Paris, Berlin, and Munich. By 18 hours, the pulse had reached New York, Washington, D.C., and Toronto. Amazingly, for as many as five days after the explosion, weather stations in 50 cities around the globe observed this unprecedented spike in pressure reoccurring, like clockwork, approximately every 34 hours. That is roughly how long it takes sound to travel across around the entire planet. In all, the pressure waves from Krakatoa circled the globe three to four times in each direction. Each city felt up to seven pressure spikes because they experienced shock waves traveling in opposite directions from the volcano, right? So it's going around the explosion. You know what I'm saying? I'm making gestures with my hand, but you can't see them. Meanwhile, tidal stations as far away as India, England, and San Francisco measured a rise in ocean waves simultaneous with this air pulse, an effect that had never been seen before. It was a sound that could no longer be heard, but that continued moving around the world, a phenomenon that people nicknamed the Great Airwave. Hey! Thanks for listening to my little podcast today. And if you want to support me on Patreon, look me up on Patreon. It's Torrin Atkinson. And I made a little page on Facebook for Torrin's Guide to Everything. It has... It looks like 113 likes. That's not bad. But I feel like let's get up to 114. Come on now. And if you have an idea for an episode, if you would like to be guided by me on some topic, then uh, reach out to me. Come find me. I'm on Facebook. I think it's at uniserve.com. I'm on the uh, Twitter, which I never check. It's at Thickets. And I think you can also message me through the Patreon. Thanks for listening, and until next time, smell you later. that either groom of the tomb groom of the tomb